0: A glass of beer for a dime A bottle for a quarter Whiskey, 20 cents a shot while it lasts It's price gouging, no doubt about it But where else can the thirsty wet their whistles and can Of the city's more than 100 saloons and liquor stores Only four are still open on May 26, 1919 the last day before Prohibition starts in Ohio. It's the final day of a two-part bacchanalia before the taps go dry. Beer and whiskey won't flow again, legally, until 1933. Welcome to Tales from the Rep Morgue, the podcast that explores the Canton Repository's 200-year-old archive. I'm your host, Shane Hoover. In this episode, we'll travel back to the start of Prohibition in Ohio, which began months before the federal law took effect in January 1920. We'll go back to the day that Cantonians gulped their last drinks before embarking on the so-called Noble Experiment. We'll also look at local events in the decades leading up to Prohibition and find the surprising link to the present. Part One Canton's Last Call As Prohibition nears in late May 1919, Canton saloon keepers and their patrons brace for a dry future. The city directory for that year lists 103 saloons, plus two
1: breweries and four liquor wholesalers in Canton. Many farewell parties are being planned for tomorrow night. In the last several weeks, stocks of wines and liquors have rapidly disappeared from Ohio barrooms, and the state today is said to be near dry. The Repository, May 23, 1919 The next day, May 24, is a Saturday, and the
0: mad dash for drink begins. Extra bartenders man the saloons, as do the cops. Saloon keepers have planned months ahead and stocked their inventories. Their goal is to drain the last keg just before the curtain falls at midnight. Thousands of dollars in booze already have been stashed in private warehouses and cellars, and saloons sell what's left at inflated prices. Draft beer is at a premium. That doesn't stop thirsty Cantonians. They load baskets with bottles and jugs, sometimes disguised as groceries, and belly up to the bars. The stocks of booze dwindle after supper time. More than a few customers order a shot of bourbon, only for the tired barman to reply, There's nothing left but beer, or Gin or nothing, pard. Some saloons switch to non alcoholic near beer when the real stuff runs out. Well, says one man, we still have the taste anyway. Police report only 18 arrests that night, and one incident of knife play.
1: There was little disorder during the evening hours, although many citizens could be seen walking with a rolling gait that could not be attributed to a life at sea. The Repository, May 25th, 1919. Canton has gone dry, almost.
0: As the revelers sleep that Sunday, 163 of Ohio's 5,600 saloons get ready for a final sprint. A quirk in state law means that liquor permits expired a couple of days before the start of Prohibition. Sunday sales are illegal, but a saloon can open on Monday if it renews its license. The fee is $305, $4,600 in today's currency, and the permit is good for just 19 hours. Only four saloon keepers in Canton pay the extra money to stay open. One of them is Bernard Meehan, proprietor of the Edwards Hotel at 4th Street Northeast and Market Avenue. Meehan, called Lovey by his friends and customers, has run the hotel for about three years. He brought his wife and two daughters from Wheeling, West Virginia, to find their fortune in Canton. But the last year has been difficult. The city closes saloons during the height of the Spanish influenza, and Mian's wife, Margaret, dies during the pandemic. But Bernard Meehan is a risk-taker. As other saloons turn into restaurants and soft-drink emporiums, he ponies up to $305. So do
1: three other establishments. Today is the day it will be settled. Midnight Tonight marks the official, if not authentic, death of the liquor business in the state. The Repository, May 26, 1919. When Monday arrives, the saloons
0: are packed. Customers fight their way to the bars to buy drinks at twice the normal price, spending thousands of dollars in each saloon. The Canton Liquor Store and Marlou Cafe have their best nights ever. Over at the Edwards Hotel, Bernard Meehan watches the cash roll in. He covers the cost of the permit with plenty to spare. When the clock strikes midnight, The hotel bar has sold everything except
1: a half barrel of beer. Although many cellars all over the city are well stocked, the city for the first time in its history knew the meaning of going dry Tuesday. And the private stocks assumed a new value. Canton, legally at least, is arid as last bar is closed.
0: Part 2, when we come back. Part 2. Your town's rotten, young man. On Sunday, May 25th, local churches celebrate the start of Prohibition mindful there is one day left for determined sinners to drink. The Rev. P. H. Welsheimer of Canton's First Christian Church goes so far as to preach a funeral for John Barleycorn, the personification of alcohol. There's no casket, but a quartet sings the old temperance hymn, Bury Him Deeply Down. Bury Him Down, Deeply Down, This fear. All king with his crown, he shall reign no more in city or town, or we'll bury him deeply. Down.
2: It is customary to speak respectfully of the dead, but the conduct of John Barleycorn has been such as to merit no respect. This is no sad occasion. it carries with it great joy. It would be perfectly fitting if even on this Lord's day, The people of Ohio were hilarious in expressions of happiness over the death of this king. This is the day that will bring peace, happiness, and prosperity to peoples unborn. John Barleycorn shed more blood, spread more terror, and was guilty of more atrocities each year than the entire army of the Hun. 25% of the insanity of Ohio, 35% of the vagrancy, pauperism, and poverty, and 75% of the crime can be charged to John Barleycorn. For every penny he has ever paid into the treasury of the state, he has taken out 99. We are reminded today that righteousness will ultimately triumph. The eyes of the great commonwealth of Ohio have been opened, and people with ballots more powerful than bullets on the 7th day of last November shot down the king of terrors And tomorrow night, at midnight, we bury him deeply down. Rev. P. H. Welsheim, First Christian Church, May 25, 1919.
0: It's easy to cast temperance supporters as prudes and zealots. But by the time Prohibition starts, the nation has been on a century-long bender. Beer and cider in early America are often safer to drink than dirty water from rivers and ponds. Distilling takes off later. Making liquor is a way to preserve and transport excess grain, and it generates tax dollars. But by 1830, Americans are drinking 7 gallons of pure alcohol a year. That's equal to 90 bottles of 80 proof liquor per person three times the amount Americans drink today. Whiskey consumption drops to more modern levels by the end of the 1800s, but beer consumption balloons from 36 million gallons in 1850 to 855 million gallons in 1890. Over the same time, the national population merely triples. The growth of American cities in the mid-1850s highlights problems that many people associate with alcohol, says Nina Thomas, manager of the Westerville History Center, which houses the Anti-Saloon League of America collection.
3: There were a lot of concerns that were raised because um, the cities had things like joblessness and homelessness and high crime. And so people in rural areas were starting to, to see that and start to blame, you know, alcohol consumption.
0: Into the early 1900s, Canton's Court Avenue has so many saloons, it is called Whiskey Alley, and where there are saloons, gamblers and prostitutes gather. So do vote-seeking politicians, with pockets stuffed with beer money. Canton's reputation is well known when hatchet-swinging, temperance-radical Carrie Nation speaks to a repository reporter on her way to a hatchination nation in the city.
3: Your town's rotten, young man. I hear it on the train. How many saloons in your city? Something over 150, you say. Well, think of how many homes are required to support them. Think of the young men who are swallowed by them. Your mayor is responsible for all this Sunday desecration of which I hear.
0: Carrie Nation starts her crusade in Kansas but Ohio is already a key player in the temperance movement. The National Women's Christian Temperance Union starts in Cleveland in 1874, and an Oberlin minister founds the Anti-Saloon League in 1893. Later based in Westerville, the Anti-Saloon League is one of the most powerful dry groups in the country. Thomas says Ohio's place in the temperance movement grows out of earlier causes.
3: During the Civil War, obviously there were a lot of people involved in the underground movement and and part of the abolition movement, and a lot of Ohioans Ohioans were involved in that movement. Once that was over, you know, they were looking for a new movement to get involved in, and temperance and prohibition was a natural one.
0: Methodists, Presbyterians, and other Protestant denominations strongly support temperance, as do Ohioans living in rural towns and villages. The cause intertwines with other progressive issues of the day. Women's suffrage, pure food and drugs, labor rights, and the federal income tax. But temperance leaders don't hesitate to make racist or anti-immigrant arguments to advance their cause, and at times ally with groups such as the KKK. If white Protestants in rural towns represent righteous, moral America then the cities, with their saloons catering to immigrants from southern and central Europe, including many Catholics and Jews, are degenerate. When Carrie Nation speaks to a crowd of 2,000 at Canton's auditorium in 1908, she knows just who to blame.
3: It's the Germans who are causing much of the misery of this land. It's the Germans who come to this country and make the juices of our grains into the rotten slop they call beer. Slop that poisons and destroys, that takes the shoes off the children's feet and the clothes off the women's backs. Shall we allow foreigners to rob America of all that is good in America? These German brewers. I'll name them. There's Schlitz, there's Pabst, there's Anheuser, there's Budweiser.
0: Stark County bolstered by wets in Canton and Maslin, votes to stay wet the year after Cary Nation's visit. But by 1913, dries have made gains in local option elections. Six townships and 14 villages are dry, as are parts of Canton and Alliance. And when the United States enters World War I, support for alcohol, especially beer, becomes synonymous with support for the country's enemies. Part 3 When We Come Back. Part 3 The Last Word. Many of Canton's saloons reopen as soda fountains, restaurants, and candy stores immediately after Prohibition. Brewers try to make cereal beverages. Hotels serve soft drink versions of Gin Rickies and Martinis. Prohibition seems to be working. Arrests are down and Canton City Council votes to close the jail in the basement of City Hall. Bootlegging isn't as widespread as had been feared. The notorious vice den of Columbia Heights seemingly transforms overnight. Columbia Heights is an unincorporated settlement of 5,000 people just outside Maslin's city limit. The residents are Greeks, Romanians, and other immigrants who work in the steel mills. Columbia Heights has saloons and serious gambling action. In one night, it's claimed, $90,000 changes hands, an amount worth almost $1.4 million today. The Stark County Sheriff typically makes five arrests a day in Columbia
1: Heights. But no one is locked up in the week after Prohibition starts. The next day, there was no trace of the old life. The saloons were empty. The coffee houses deserted, and the gambling dens closed. The Repository, June 8, 1919
0: The unnamed reporter interviews three former saloon owners. The men assure the reporter they are glad the state is dry and are happy to quit the saloon business for the public's benefit. One of the saloon owners, Alex Sabo, will be arrested at least four times and have his business padlocked for violating Prohibition. It doesn't take long for other cracks to show in the tranquil facade. Less than a month into Prohibition, officials admit bootlegging is rife in Ohio. In Canton, the police say alcohol is being sold, and they break up two booze parties in Nemecilla Park. Police arrest 10 men for intoxication at the parties, but the men won't tell where they got the liquor. The Repository even runs a recipe for rhubarb wine. Wets across the state look to ballot measures to reverse or soften Prohibition. But that comes to nothing when National Prohibition begins in 1920. For the next 13 years, drinkers and dries, bootleggers and cops, play a cat-and-mouse game in Canton and other towns. Bernard Meehan runs the hotel for a couple more years. Later, he becomes president of a furniture company and opens a cafe. He also gets into bootlegging.
3: And there was one quote that says something like, uh, once Prohibition was instituted, uh, the dries have their law and the wets have their liquor. And that's pretty much how it went throughout Prohibition because people just found a way.
0: That's Barb Abbott, operator of Canton Food Tours and co-author of the book, Stark County Food, from early farming to modern meals. Abbott has researched Canton's Prohibition years and says the candy stores and restaurants that replaced the saloons continued as fronts for illegal activity and bootlegging. Today, alcohol misuse still causes serious social and health problems, but it also is seen as a way to revive faded downtowns with craft breweries and trendy cocktail lounges.
3: Prohibition, I think, in some ways was a restart. Today, alcohol is readily available. We can head to the martini bar, to the Canton Brewing Company, to enjoy um, a glass of wine or a glass of beer. I think most of us do in moderation. And there's a lesson to be learned for overconsumption in everything in life. And in this case, it was alcohol.
0: You can even get a drink at what used to be the Edwards Hotel. Today, the building is the home of the Stark Community Foundation and 410 Martini, a bar that just so happens to specialize in pre-Prohibition cocktails. It's hard to know exactly where Bernard Meehan served drinks in the hotel. The building was extensively renovated several times, but of the final four locations opened the day before Prohibition, this is the only one where you can still get a drink. Owner Mike Bianco and bartender Aaron Boron knew there had been a bar at the Edwards Hotel, but they didn't know its prohibition story. Aaron Boron explains.
3: I think I wish I would have known a lot of that so I could have been selling it to my customers. <laughs> it would have been a nice talking point. I think it's awesome. I think it's really cool that we're still a bar and that we're the only one that's still a bar and that we're still doing those same cool classic cocktails that they were doing back then. I think it's uh, ironic that, that we put a lot of those on the menu recently.
0: Capo Bianco says there's something about a well-made cocktail that goes beyond the liquor. When I watch somebody make a cocktail, I'm not a bartender, but I love to sit there and watch somebody just shake the glass, how they pour it in and how it's always a perfect pour right up in. The color looks great. It's a crisp, clean drink. And when you sip on it, you don't get that real strong alcohol taste. The, the flavors that are in that just kind of blend real nice to, to give you that crisp, clean, fresh feeling when you take a drink of it. On a recent Saturday evening, I duck into the old hotel and order a last word. It's a cloudy concoction of chartreuse, gin, lime juice, and maraschino liqueur. A bartender invented the cocktail in Detroit in 1916, and it became popular during Prohibition. I sip my drink and try to imagine the scene a hundred years ago. The clamoring crowd, the smell of cigars and beer, and the look on Bernard Meehan's face as his gambit pays off. Meehan's Gambit. Sounds like a good name for a drink. Thanks for listening to the Rhett Morgue Podcast, and special thanks to our voice talent for this episode: Stan Myers, Derek Hoover, and the always lovely Sarah June. Songs in this episode included Original Rags by Scott Joplin, Blind by Maidon, Alcoholic Blues by Vernon Dauhart, The Smiler by Percy Wenrick, Bury Him Deeply Down by Anonymous. Battle Hymn of the Republic by the U.S. Coast Guard Band, Out of the East by the Rector Novelty Orchestra, and Frog Legs Rag by Joe Rosie. You can check out the show notes and listen to other podcasts at cantonrep.com.